have your Bibles, you were probably right to guess that we were in the book of Colossians this morning. We know what it is many times to be disqualified in things like sporting events. We can easily see how that happens. If you are a sprinter and you take off too early, that is a false start and you can be disqualified from that. You can be disqualified from tests for cheating. Today what we are going to look at is how we can be disqualified from the reconciliation that is in Christ. If you go back to chapter 1, after Paul has talked about the glories and the magnificence of Christ in 1, 15 through 20, he then applies that to the church at Colossae and then gives them a very, very stern warning in verse 23. He says back in verse 21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And here's the warning, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Paul, as we've seen in the first two chapters, as we bring to an end the second chapter of the book of Colossians this morning, has been focused on presenting these believers mature in Christ. He's used several different metaphors for this. He's talked about being rooted and built up in Christ back in 2, 6, and 7. He's talked about presenting them as a mature person. That is not just mature spiritually. It's almost like presenting them mature to the world as though they are a grown person. They have been growing up into Christ. He's talked about walking in a manner that is suitable to Jesus Christ. So throughout the second chapter, then, what Paul has been doing is talking about those things that can hinder that walk. And it's sort of a negative chapter, not negative in that it's dour, um, but negative in the fact that he's talking about what you don't need to do. Okay, So he said, you don't need these vain philosophies. You don't need these, these ways of the world. You don't need them anymore because you can get the fullness of God through Jesus Christ. You don't need to go back to Jewish identity. You don't need to find yourself in the law in order to be considered the people of God because Christ has fulfilled the law. He is not the shadow, but the body of that which was to come. Now the tone turns much more serious. Now it is not, don't do this. You might not want to do this. Don't allow yourself to be taken captive. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you. But now it is much more serious. And we pick up in verse 18, and we'll read then to the end of the chapter. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. May God add his blessings to this reading of the word. What does it mean for us to be disqualified? What, what do we do, not that we are seeking this, but what actions taken would disqualify us 
from a, uh, the reconciliation that Christ has in us would disqualify us from his new creation, and, and we might say even disqualify us from salvation. We get characteristics in here of people who are disqualified. The first thing we meet is that a disqualified person inflates experience. He inflates experience. Look at verse 18. He says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. It's very hard to sort of get at what that is meaning. And we can easily read worship of angels as though these are people who were worshiping angels, that they would bow down before angels. But this is really hard to kind of figure out where this thought would have come from because certainly the Greeks didn't do this. The Greeks had their own gods. The Romans had their own gods. There'd be no reason for them to bring in angel worship. The people who were most concerned with angels were Jews, of course, but Jews never worshiped angels. They were much more careful than that. Likely, likely, what this means is not worshiping angels but it's the angel's worship, okay? It is almost, you can, it's not a possessive, but you can think of it as possessive. It's the, the worship that the angels perform, okay? So the idea here is that they were, they were very severe on their body, okay? Now, when you treat your body severely, your body is a well-oiled and lubricated machine, okay? It's very precise. When that precision gets thrown off, your body does very funky things. Like when you don't put oil in your car, the car will start doing funky things. I'm not a mechanic, so that's not technical language. Don't take my word on that, but you can try if you want. Um, it will start to act funny, right? So if you then do not put into your body what it needs, it will start to act funny, right? We know that there's very, very careful chemical balances in our body, hormones and um, brain chemistry, things like that. Well, what these people were doing was they were depriving their bodies of necessary nutrients. They were, asceticism is the practice of, of keeping yourself from food and drink almost to the point several, you know, there was a, a time in Christianity where monks would do this even to the point of death and they thought that it was a great death to live this way because they were denying the flesh. Apparently they never got around. They were so busy not eating they didn't read Colossians. So they will eventually, we will correct them here in just a minute, but that sense of asceticism then when mixed with this sort of religious fervor can actually make people have visions of God, okay? And so what these people were doing was probably keeping food from themselves, keeping drink from themselves until the point where they would hallucinate and they would think that they were going into the presence of angels and watching how angels worshiped God. It was the experience that they were longing for. They wanted the experience, not just of worshiping God, but of worshiping God like the angels do. A real sort of uber-spiritual worship. Now, it's very clear that Paul in the New Testament cares deeply about experience. So what we're not going to do is we're not going to turn around and say, now, listen, experience and worship doesn't matter. What matters is truth. Christians have gotten in a lot of trouble philosophically and scripturally because what we want to do is prop up propositional truth above everything, and the New Testament doesn't do that. Propositional truth is not everything. It has to be experienced, okay? This is why Psalm 34 doesn't say, read and know that the Lord is good, right? What does it say? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Those are experiences, right? Even the word, how do we talk about the word of God? As it was given to the prophets, as it's given to John the Baptist. What does he say? 
we eat it, right? We, we talk about Jesus Christ being the word and then we talk about communion. We're eating the word of God. We, we digest it. This is, this is experiential. It's not just knowledge, but it's knowledge that is experienced, okay? So not only Psalm 34, but we can turn to things like Galatians 3. Galatians, in Galatians, the problem that is being presented to them is they are being lured back into Judaism by people who are saying something along the lines of, well, to really be the people of God, to really be included in the people of God, to mature yourself in holiness, what you need to do is take on the Jewish law and circumcision and all the rites. And the first thing that Paul appeals to is not Scripture, it is their experience of the Spirit. He says this in chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. That, that's a really important. He says, if nothing else, if you can answer this question, all of your problems go away. Now, Paul doesn't stop there, but it seems like this answer should be enough for them. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He says, listen, there's only one question that needs to be asked here, and your answer to this should stop the whole thing. And his question is not about propositional truth. It's not going back to Scripture. It's simply saying, when you receive the Spirit, that experience of the Spirit, how did it come to you? We do not think that experience is unimportant, and even experience in worship is unimportant. We talk about God asking and pleading God to manifest his spirit among us. That isn't just to, to actually do things without us noticing. We want to notice God's spirit with us. But, 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 experience can also be a very bad thing. When experience overwhelms all of our worship, when our worship is guided by experience, then we can pervert what's actually going on in worship. One of the easiest and best places to see this is in Exodus 32. This is the very famous passage of the golden calf. In Exodus 32, verse 1, we read this. Moses has at this time, sorry, this is not in Exodus 32, this is me providing context. Moses has at this time gone up on the mountain, he has come down, he has given the law, he's given the Ten Commandments to the people, so the Ten Commandments have been placed before them. And then he has gone back up the mountain and he has poof, disappeared. Okay? He didn't actually disappear. But the people can't see him. They don't see him. They don't see God. They don't know what's happening. Okay? So they have been brought out of their land. They've been brought out of Egypt. They've been brought through the Red Sea. They've been taken around the wilderness for a bit. They landed in front of Sinai. Some stuff has happened, but now Moses appears to be gone. Okay? We don't know how long he was gone, but he's gone. And this is what the people say in Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together and to Aaron and said to him, <clears throat> Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool made and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now the context of this is important because this isn't an impulsive move by them. Notice how they start this off. They are a lost people. They don't know what's going on. They don't know this God. Let's be very clear about this. This God has shown up. There's whisperings and rumors of him some 400 years ago, and all of a sudden he shows up. He does all these miraculous things, and he leads them out, and they have no idea what he is like. They've got no idea what his character is like. They know from Egypt that gods are pretty finicky. Okay? So they don't know what their God is like. And all of a sudden, Moses has disappeared, and they say, we don't know what's going on. So what do they do? Why do they ask Aaron to build them a structure? Why do they ask him to build them a calf? Where did the idea of a calf come from, in Aaron's mind anyway? It comes from Egypt. What are they doing? This is, this is the 14th BC century equivalent of comfort food, right? They're saying, we don't know what's going on. We want the things that we know. Build us a statue that we can worship. And you'll notice that Aaron even tries to smooth stuff out by building an altar in front of it and saying, this is a feast tomorrow for Yahweh. He uses the name of the Lord, the personal saving name of the Lord. It's not just any gods. Aaron says specifically, it's this God. They long, they long for comfort. They long for peace. And so they return back to where they've come from to find it. And they build something that they know is idolatrous because the Ten Commandments have already been given to them. You shall not make an idol. And even more than that, we can see that their comfort is given to them. It's simply an experience thereafter because the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They longed for the experience of Egypt. You get this continuously throughout the past. As soon as Moses leads them up to the Red Sea, with the Red Sea before him and Pharaoh's army behind him, what do they say? Say, man, Moses, you really, you brought us out to the desert just to have us killed. Dude, seriously, we could have just been slaves in Egypt and that would have been better. As they walk around the wilderness and they don't have meat, what do they say to Moses? You know, man, back in Egypt we had sweet barbecue and here we've got nothing. They continually look back to where they were because that provides them comfort. And as long as that is what is driving you, you will always be led to idolatry. What ends up happening when you inflate experiences is you no longer worship God. What you are doing is worshiping God in order to get something back from him. It's a boomerang worship, right? You're throwing your worship toward him so that you will get something back. And in that sense, you are no longer really worshiping God. He is simply an idol to get back what you want out of him. If we organize our worship to provide experiences, we fail to experience true worship. And when we do things in our worship services simply to provide an experience for people, if that is the purpose of our gathering together is to provide them an experience, eventually we will lose worship altogether and it will just become a provision of experience. 
it'll be a dumbed-down worship concert. But, but that's not what we're here for. Now, that doesn't mean that doing things well and excellently is not good. And it also doesn't mean that experience is not important. But it does mean that we cannot inflate experience to a position that it does not deserve. The second thing this will do is it will lead us to ignore Christ. A disqualified person ignores Christ. He says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. It's in the overvaluing of experience in worship is by necessity individualizing. Because it doesn't matter what's going on with the people around you. What matters is how you are experiencing things. You'll notice Paul even hints at this in verse 18 when he says, he's puffed, out, he's puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. It's singular, not there, but his. When you come to worship only to have an experience out of it, it is by nature selfish. That boomerang worship doesn't come back and hit everybody else. It's solely for you. It's so that you can experience God. Instead of you coming and worshiping him, it's only so that you can get something back. And what does Paul counter with? Paul counters not just with what right and appropriate worship is in Christ, but also the good of the body. Listen, throughout Colossians 2, we've been really forceful in talking about the body and how important the body is. And it's good and right and true. I preach it because I believe it. However, we should never, ever forget that the body only exists with the head. Only exists with the head. And Paul's point here is simply this, that if you are honestly going to grow into maturity, you have to have people around you growing to maturity. True worship, pointing at Christ, does not let go of Christ because it is only from him that everyone grows together. Notice the unity, both the sense of growth and unity. You are nourished and knit together. Now listen, the way that Paul is framing this is probably not the best biology, but it's a metaphor. It's meant for ecclesiology. How does the church grow? It grows because they're holding fast to the head. And by holding fast to the head, God honors them with growth. More than that, It not only ignores Christ because it's focused on themselves, but it ignores Christ in a lot of modern contexts by undervaluing the Spirit. What I'm about to say, I do not mean to be generalized. Not every Pentecostal worship service is like this, but in a lot of Pentecostal people that I've known, they undervalue the Spirit, which is weird Because if we think of anything, we think of them overvaluing the Spirit. But they miscalculate what the Spirit's role is. Read through the New Testament. Read through it. Give it a really good read. And you know what? Two people of the Trinity you find exalted over everything else, time and time again, is the Father and the Son. Where is the Spirit? Even the beginning of Colossians. Let's go back. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So Christ is mentioned. God our Father is mentioned. We always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And on and on it goes. Christ and the Father. Christ and the Father. Why isn't the Son, or excuse me, why isn't the Spirit being mentioned? Because it's the Spirit's job to glorify Christ and the Father. 
this word is the work of the Spirit. We think that it's infallible because men led by the Holy Spirit penned the words. The whole point of the Spirit is to provide witness. It's to lead you in conviction of sin and confession of your faith back to Christ. That is his work. That's what he longs to do. And by elevating him to a position that is not his, he doesn't long for you to worship him. He longs to work through you to worship Christ. That is the role of the Spirit. And by asking the Spirit to simply provide you with an experience, dude, go take heroin. That's an experience. That's not what the Spirit is here for. That's not what the Spirit is here for. The Spirit is here not to give you a chemical high. The Spirit is not here to make you feel fuzzy and warm. The Spirit is here to lead you to worship Jesus Christ. Don't take heroin. John, 1 John 4.2 By this you know, and you can take that word know, and you can easily plop down experience there. Okay? You want an experience of the Spirit of God. You want to know the Spirit of God. This is what 1 John says. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The Spirit pushes you to Christ. If you let go of the head in order to gain the experience of the Spirit, you are mistreating the Spirit of God. And my guess is that you don't know what the Spirit of God is. Whatever spirit is leading you, it is not from God. Number three, a disqualified person insists on human traditions. Verse 20 through 21 say this, If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. This sounds a lot like a passage from Matthew, which we will read in full. Matthew 15, 1 through 20. It's a very famous passage, and you probably don't have it maybe by heart, but you understand where it's going. Matthew 15, verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your mother and your father, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called to people and he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. 
And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These, these are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Paul's saying, listen, you guys, there are these commandments out there that you need to perform these rituals before you partake in worship or before you partake of, of food and things like that. And he says, this is just a lie. This is, you are treating and you are assisting on human traditions when you do this and you're not listening to the commandment of God. Now, frankly, Paul is going beyond what Jesus said there, I think. Because when Jesus is talking, he gives a really clear example. The example is the Pharisees are saying, listen, before your little friends here go to eat, they're not washing their hands. Okay? Now that was not actually commanded by the Old Testament. And so when Jesus gives the example, he's saying, listen, you guys are making this way more important than it should be. It's not commanded by God the Father. But when Paul says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, those are sort of blanket things. This sounds to me like the kind of Old Testament laws that would say, listen, if you come across a dead animal and you have to touch it, you are unclean. It sounds to me like the cleanliness laws. If you go back to Leviticus and you read through there, there's tons of them. All these kinds of things that you can't touch, you can't eat. All of the stuff that you, if you touch that, you become unclean. And then you have to go through a process of cleansing yourself before you can re-enter the camp, which is also re-entering the people of God, and before you can approach God and worship and give him offerings. But I think that Paul is saying those things are out as well. So notice how he phrases this. He doesn't just say, if you align yourself with, if you just talking generally to people, saying all of these things, they're just traditions, they don't matter at all. He doesn't preface it by simply saying anybody who does this, but he says specifically you, who what? If you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world. He says, now you are in Christ. These things no longer defile you. Christ is the end of the law. He is the completion of the law. The totality of the law is found in him. You don't have to worry about the uncleanliness of things. And notice the way he then talks about it sounds exactly like what Jesus said, referring to things that all perish as they are used. You take in food, it's gone. As Jesus would say, it goes into the stomach and it's expelled. These things don't defile you. The reason why I think Paul refers, he's, he's in a sense demeaning the law. He's saying the law has now come to an end. And if you insist on keeping the law, all you are doing now is keeping human traditions because God has put an end to it with the resurrection of Christ. When Christ comes, the law ends. And anything that you are keeping from that in terms of civil and ritual laws, it's now just a tradition. The only reason to hold on to that as a Christian is from tradition. And if you are doing that, you are separating yourself from Christ. Listen, human traditions are good. We have a lot of human traditions here. A lot of them. The fact that we are meeting in a building, it's human tradition. The, the fact that we had Sunday school this morning, it's human tradition. The fact that we are gathered with you sitting there and me up here behind a podium, 
human tradition. The fact that I'm wearing a tie, human tradition, right? All of, a lot, not all of, but a lot of the ways in which we have fashioned our worship is done by human tradition. Does that mean that we should just up and quit all those things that are just human tradition? Clearly not. Human tradition can be good, and when appropriated wisely, is good. But we can question the validity of things that don't do that. We can look at Sunday school and we can say, listen, is Sunday school really working for us? That's not sinful. That's wisdom at times. And it is, by the way. You should come to Sunday school. It's very good. But we can't say the same thing about singing. We don't get to stand up and say, okay, well, let's, let's start quantifying and really thinking through the wisdom of singing in our worship service because I'm not sure it's doing us any good. We don't get to make those choices. You are to sing to the Lord. You don't get to say, listen, I've been, I've been praying for like 25 years for the salvation of my coworker, and it hasn't happened, and so I am really doubting that prayer works, and so we should just cut it out. Scripture doesn't give you that option. Those are not human tradition things. Those are necessary things that God commands us to do. We can question every simple, single human ritual and tradition that we have. It's fine. You can do that. I'm going to tell you the reason why a lot of those traditions are here is because they're good, and we will keep them, okay? So I'm not trying to blow up your world or anything because we're probably not going to change too terribly much after the sermon. I simply mean this, that if we start insisting on those human traditions, instead of on what God has given us, we're finding authority in culture, we're finding authority in tradition, and we are not finding authority in God's word and God's word alone, and simply we're letting go of Christ. We need to be careful about it. Again, wisdom has to come through here. Experiences, not bad. You've got to handle them right. Tradition, not bad. You have to handle it right. And the last, the disqualified person indulges the flesh. Notice what he says at the end. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. He says, listen, there, there appears to be wisdom here. If you're a glutton, stop eating, okay? You, you realize that what goes into your body, yes, I know, frowny face, what goes into your body is, is important, and then if, if God commands you to not do that, so that so just cut it, cut it out. Let's just stop eating altogether. We'll have like 40 days, but it'll be a holy 40 days, and then we'll die and we'll be all happy, right? Same thing with speech, right? So, I know the speech gets us in trouble every now and then, like when you tell a congregation to take heroin. So what you should do is just not talk, right? So let's just keep our mouths shut and not talk, and we can come up with a system to pantomime the gospel, right? So it's not really speech, but it's kind of speech. It's not, sign language is too close to speech, so we wouldn't want to do that either. But somehow we can come up with like a performance, a visual performance of the gospel. If you lust, just go live in a cave, dude. No woman wants a guy who lives in a cave. They won't even come by and see you. Every once in a while, someone who's spelunking will see you, but no one wants a smelly man-dwelling cave dweller, right? It's just not going to happen. They're, they're going to stay away from you, and you're not going to see them. So because you can separate yourself from all of these temptations, then you can battle the flesh. It's like some sort of creepy 1950s B science fiction movie, right? There's this fog that's coming, and it's sin. And so to get away from it, you're just going to flee, right? If you can just get away, you just go away from it. You're going you're gonna to flee from it and you'll, you'll move away. So you're just going to treat your body with severity 
And you were going to keep yourself from all this sinful stuff. And Paul says, you know what? It doesn't do you a lick of good because the fog isn't rolling after you. The fog is welling up within you. That's exactly what Jesus says. This is not what you take in that defiles you, but it comes from the heart. Now, don't get me wrong. The things in the world can provoke your heart, okay? There are certain things that you cannot see without sinning, okay? But the point is that you can't run away from sin by getting away from that. Sin is always going to be present with you. Certainly engaging in it will engage you always in sin, but you can't always get away from it by running away from it. Paul says, it seems like that's a good plan. It seems like if you want to battle gluttony, not eating is the good way to go. If you want to keep yourself from seeing things that are bad and thinking bad thoughts, then simply keep all of them away from you. And Paul says, it seems like that's wise, but guys, there is nothing there that can power and embattle the flesh. It's just going to rule over you in a different way. This is why a lot of fundamentalism just doesn't work. Making more rules doesn't work. Dude, there's like a whole books filled with that, right? That Christ fulfilled because it didn't work for people. It didn't keep them from sinning. You cannot physically separate yourself from sin. You can remove, again, wisdom is important here. You can remove yourself physically from things that would lead you into sin, but don't kid yourself. That sin dwells within you. Paul is finishing his negative argument, and in chapter 3, he's going to turn toward the positive argument. This is things that you should not do. These are things that you should not be. What should you be? And he's going to start that in chapter 3. The emphasis of chapter 2 is fully on this. There is one way. There is one way to be true spiritual worshipers of God. There is one way to be built into the body of Christ. There is one way to put off the flesh in a circumcision that is made without hands. There is one way that we can move to have forgiveness of our sins. There is one way that we get access to God. There is one way that we have assurance of the full and richest blessings of God. There is one way to walk as a manner of life that is suitable to the Lord and that is found only in the work and the promise of Jesus Christ our Lord. That is it. Do not turn to other things that promise you what they cannot deliver. Turn to the one who gives you everything that you need and more therein. It is only through Jesus Christ that you have access to everything that God would want you to have. There is no reason for you to turn to the right or to the left. I did that backwards for me. To the right or to the left. Keep a hold of Christ in his body and grow together in the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, you are kind to us in so many ways, and we pray that we might be wise in how we handle ourselves in the world. It is so easy for us to get blindsided by sin. It's so easy for us to have uh, what your Old Testament calls unintentional sins where where because of our fallen nature we walk into things and we find ourselves promoting things that are not right and good. Father, let us be humble enough when confronted with those things to change. But let us also seek your seek you in your word to know how we ought to navigate these things. So that we can have a right appropriation of a experience, so that we can understand how to wisely use the traditions that have been passed down to us. So that we can know rightly how to put off the flesh, and the sinfulness that still indwells all of us as we await the coming of our Lord. But more than any of these things, Father, let us hold tightly to Christ.
for he is all we need and all we have. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.